The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you turn with me in your Bible to Exodus chapter 12. We'll be covering a long section from Exodus 12:33 through uh, most of chapter 13 uh, through verse 16. School children in Texas are taught the rally cry that led to the independence of the state of Texas from Mexico. Remember the Alamo was the battle cry as General Sam Houston led his army in defeat of Santa Ana and brought revenge upon the massacre of Davy Crockett and the other volunteers who gave up their lives at the small mission there in San Antonio. That was a fight of freedom that cost the sacrifice of many lives. And to fail to remember those fallen on the battlefield is to dishonor them, even this day as we Remember our veterans on Veterans Day. It's a disgrace to fail to remember those who have sacrificed for our freedoms. In our passage, the Lord, just having just redeemed and delivered his people Israel in the Exodus, institutes for them ways to remember this great salvation event. And I believe that there are lessons for us to learn from our forefathers as we, too, learn how to remember our redemption. I read, beginning in Exodus chapter 12, verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up and their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is night of watching, kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house 
You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you, and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised people shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. Chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep the service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast of the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you all your, in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep the statute at its appointed time from year to year. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of a man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or the frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. This is God's holy inspired word. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at the mighty works you have done in days of old. And we proclaim and testify that you continue to do mighty and awesome deeds as you extend your glory, as you spread the fame of Jesus Christ throughout the world. And we pray that you might give us wisdom and insight as we study this, your word together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every married man knows that to forget his wife's anniversary is to reap severe consequences. In our hurried and anxious world, we are anxious that we might forget an appointment, a deadline, or a child's event. We use online calendars and phone apps to remind us where we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. 
Many of us can identify with that awkward moment when you see somebody and you, you should remember their name, but you forget. Some of us perhaps have had the sad and painful experience of a loved one developing dementia and not able to remember the things like they used to. To be fallen is to be forgetful. And sometimes we even forget the most important things. On many occasions, Scripture exhorts us to remember, to not forget the ways of the Lord or any of His great redeeming works. Our passage is no different. In fact, it instructs God's people as they encounter and experience the great salvation event of the Old Testament, instructing them to not to remember the Exodus. Sadly, Israel would forget, falling into idolatry and eventually being sent off into exile. And like our forefathers, we too can suffer a kind of spiritual dementia that must be stirred up with the regular practice of remembering, lest we should forget the great salvation that's been purchased for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight, we want to consider three things. How it is we might remember God's redemption in history, God's redemption in our lives, and the promise of future redemption. But first, there are three areas of background that provide the context for this redemptive story that I'd like to address. The first is that God proved faithful in his promise to Moses that Israel would plunder the Egyptians. He would not let his people leave Egypt empty-handed. They would receive back pay, the wages that they earned but did not receive for centuries of slave labor. We can imagine the elders of Israel incredulous as Moses tells them that they will leave with great parting gifts from the Egyptians and instructs the women to ask their uh, mistresses for gifts to depart with them. But the hand of God was so heavy. As his hand was heavy, how he made Pharaoh's heart heavy, Israel would be heavy as they left with great possessions out of the land of Egypt. Years later, under the leadership of Eli, the judge and priest of Israel, the Lord would afflict similarly the enemy Philistines by, by sending upon them great plagues after they had stolen the Ark of the Covenant and brought it to the temple of their god Dagon. You recall as the people, the cities were in uproar for fear of the plagues of the Lord. They sent the Ark back upon a cart drawn by cattle and loaded down with gold offerings. God restores the fortunes of his people, has an infinite supply and can tax the wealth of the nations for his people's good. The scripture says that God will give the nations as an inheritance. Second, consider the historical credibility of this narrative. It makes bold claims. Verse 37 says that 600,000 men, not counting women and children, departed out of Egypt. That must have been at least two, if not three million or more people. 
And there are skeptical scholars who scoff at such a great number. And it's indeed true that the word for a thousand could mean clan or a military unit, perhaps indicating 600 groups of people. But unless the passage clearly indicates hyperbole or exaggeration, or unless the context dictates that this normal word for a thousand means something else, we have to accept it at face value. And so I see no reason why we should not believe that this was a great multitude. All the other numbers given in Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus indicate a very large number. And it's not unheard of. Seventy people, we are told, went down into Egypt among Joseph's brothers. And if they double in size, every generation, for the 15 generations over the 430-year span, they easily reach in the millions. Do the math. And of course, we have Exodus 1 that testifies that the Lord blessed his people and they increased greatly. The land was swarming with them, so much so that the Egyptians began to loathe them and feel overwhelmed and feared a rebellion or that they might revolt and join with their enemies. And the Lord provides for his people on numerous occasions. In Numbers chapter 11, It says that God brought quail in to feed his people. That were 18 inches high of quail packed in, a day's journey in every direction. That's a radius of 40 miles. You know how much quail that is? That's over 50 billion quail. There's enough quail, a lifetime supply for all 3 million Israelites. Is the Lord's arm too short? I think not. And then verse 38 indicates that a mixed multitude went with the Israelites. These were non-Israelites, foreigners, other captives of the Egyptians, perhaps even some disenfranchised Egyptians joined with the Exodus. Moses would even marry one of them, a dark-skinned Cushite woman. This is a sign of God's early redemption, of in grafting in the Gentiles. Another indicator that God's salvation was for all nations, not just Israel. In the next passage, God makes provisions for non-Israelites to eat the Passover as long as they embrace the sign of circumcision and worship Yahweh. Thirdly, God gives signs to his people that they might remember their redemption. The Passover feast, when coupled with circumcision, are the two primary identity markers of God's people that anticipate the two sacraments instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Passover, of course, commemorates the mercy of God as the angel of death came into the camp and passed over Israelites' homes because their doors were covered and the blood of the lamb, sparing the firstborn sons. The unleavened bread and the lamb were to be eaten in haste, indicating both a hurried haste as well as sacrifice in the night of the Exodus. And the ancient people of old consumed the signs, just as we do today when we drink the bread and eat the bread and drink the cup. 
to remember the great sacrifice of our Lord. Of course, every male who participated in the Passover must be circumcised. Israelite slave or sojourner, which is a traveler, a foreigner who joins himself to Israelites becoming an Israelite himself by way of circumcision and worship of Yahweh. Foreigners were not permitted, and this is not because of their ethnicity, but because of their devotion to false gods. Rather, those who embrace Yahweh and take up the sign, the marker of his people, could partake in the Passover, and we see the parallel with the Lord's Supper as those who gather to worship the true and living God, but those who have yet to profess faith in Jesus Christ must refrain, lest they eat and drink judgment upon themselves. So these are the, the preliminary matters that, that, that lead to these three points. First, we are to remember God's redemption in history. Moses' speech in chapter 13 begins with this key word, remember. Remember how the Lord brought you out of Egypt, the house of slavery with a strong hand. Now, one may ask, how could you forget that? How could one forget the ten plagues and then just go along their merry way? Well, the answer is our sin-sick, self-centered natures. God would go on to do even more amazing things, parting the Red Sea, collapsing it to crush and wash out the Egyptian army. He would provide manna, water, and quail to his people in the wilderness. And yet the people forgot. Judges 3.7 says that the children of the conquest generation forgot the Lord. Later, Samuel while giving his parting speech as Saul became king, recorded, recounted to the people how their forefathers went astray when they forgot the Lord. Psalm 78 and Psalm 106 repeat this, this instruction to remember and indicates the consequences of God's people forgetting the Lord. And writer Ann Voskamp writes, the forgetfulness is, the, is chronic soul amnesia. Well, in anticipating the amnesia of his people, God provides signs to remind Israel and us of his great redemption. The first is to consecrate the males, both men and beasts. The Lord has claims on the firstborn male of each and every household. The firstborn was the pride of the fathers. Firstborns in Israel received a double inheritance and held authority over the other sons and daughters. Later, God would institute in the Levitical priesthood that the, the priest would take the place of all the firstborns in Israel to perform the duties of tending to the tabernacle to lead Israel in worship and to provide them instruction from the law of Moses. The second sign is the Passover, the annual reminder where every household in Israel would reenact the exodus over a seven-day feast of unleavened bread. On this occasion, parents were to instruct their children to make it more than just mere tradition, but a joyous celebration of God's mighty works 
who delivered them out of a bondage to pagan rulers and the worship of false gods, set free to worship, serve, and know the true King of kings and Lord of lords. As we celebrate Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, is it in your household a mere tradition, or is it an occasion, an opportunity to remember, to instruct, to push against the ways of a secular culture that wants to materialize everything and make it an opportunity to truly be thankful, to remember the glory of the incarnation and the wonder and power of the resurrection. Several times this passage instructs Israel to teach their children, to remind them. And the way we live and the way we worship and the way we celebrate these holidays that have been secularized in some sense is an opportunity to pass on to the next generation the mighty deeds of the Lord. When verse 9 has this obscure reference to the hand and the memorial between the eyes and the law of the Lord upon the mouth, and what Moses is saying here is to read the word, to memorize and meditate upon it, lest God's people forget his awesome redemption. Later in Deuteronomy 11, Moses is more clear where he writes, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. In the silver chair, one of the Chronicles of Narnia written by C.S. Lewis Aslan, the Christ figure, calls two children from our world, Jill Pole and Eustace Scrub, to Narnia to fulfill an important task, to find a lost prince. And Aslan gives Jill four signs to guide them on their quest and tells her to repeat them over and over again until she knows them perfectly. And as he is sending her away, he gives her this final exhortation. But first, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. Well, Jill and Eustace proceed on their quest and they forget several of the signs, especially at times when they need them the most. And before they know it, they have missed the first three signs, realizing too late that they had missed them and unable to take the desired action. Jill confesses to Eustace, It's all my fault. I'd given up repeating the signs every night. And in this episode, C.S. Lewis illustrates the importance of Scripture and the Christian life, why we need to memorize the Bible, spend time in God's Word, put it into practice. Jill had neglected her daily memory exercises and so forgot the signs, fell into disobedience and confusion, and almost led to her death. We too neglect our duty to our ruin, 
When we fail to remember, when we fail to take God's Word and press it into our minds and hearts, we neglect to equip ourselves to meet the various trials of life. You and I face dangers, and we come before our fears unprepared when we are ill-equipped from God's Word. We can all remember times that we wished we had been better prepared. A test, a competition, a job interview, meeting new people, perhaps a witnessing opportunity. Remembering our redemption makes us more resilient to face hard things. For some people, the holidays bring loneliness. And remembering your redemption that God promises to never leave you nor forsake you meets you in your loneliness. Perhaps your holidays are filled with strife or painful family relationships. And the word of the cross would tell you that it was for freedom that Christ has set you free, that God makes you a peacemaker, that the gospel equips you to long suffer with difficult people, to show grace, to forgive as you have been forgiven. Perhaps some of us suffer anxiety over our financial situation. Perhaps some of us worry about strained relationships with loved ones who have made shipwreck of their faith. Perhaps you are concerned about the direction of our country, a nation deeply polarized. Some of the surveys for the, the pastor search committee have come through, and by and large, the surveys indicate faith and hope and confidence and joy, but some people express anxiety as we enter into a season of transition. And for us, it's an opportunity to trust the Lord, to remember God's mighty deeds in history, in this church, in hope and confidence that he will continue to provide and lead God's people for time to come. But of course, for some of us, if we have a hard time remembering the things of God, we talk talk too easily Remember the things that we wish we could forget. We can't seem to dislodge out of our memories things that we regret. Painful traumas, mistakes, sins, failures, things that we wish would just go away. And even so, when we struggle to forget, we must work even harder to remember the redeeming works of God to meet us in our painful memories and to fill our minds and hearts with the memory of the things that God has done to redeem his people over and over and over again by his power, by his grace and for his glory. Secondly, this passage calls us to remember God's redemption in our lives, not just in history past, but in our own lives and the way that he has worked in your life, which sometimes we call that a testimony. We require one of everybody who joins this church. You have a story of how God has worked redemptively in you to bring you to the knowledge of himself, to enter into a saving relationship with him. Whether it was when you were a really, really young child or perhaps a teen, a youth, a, an adult, you have, in, you have left darkness and stepped into the glorious light of the gospel. And I would contend that you have more than one testimony. 
And while, yes, you have a salvation experience, a conversion story to tell, you also have many testimonies of the way God has delivered you and carried you through difficult times. And I believe our passage exhorts us to tell that story over and over again. As it says, to tell your son, to say to him. And it's not just limited to your children, it's to friends and family and neighbors and people. You have something to tell. And by rehearsing and practicing and sharing your testimony, your story, you challenge and encourage others, but you also encourage yourself. You remind yourself, yes, I've seen the hand of God in my life to sustain me, to deliver me, to propel me forward in my journey as we pilgrim on to the celestial city. Psalm 145 says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. I will meditate. Now many parents may recall a time when confronting a child in his or her sin, asking, what happened? A child may respond with, I forget. Sometimes adults do this. Sometimes politicians and others in the public sphere do this, conveniently forgetting their misdeed as an attempt to cover up. Sinners are culpably forgetful. The scripture would say that we need to remember our sins and misdeeds, not so that we may dwell upon them, not so that they may be shackles and bondage in our lives, but so that we might confess them, that we might repent, and that we might come back to the gospel of hope that gives us freedom to not live in pretense, to not pretend that we have forgotten our misdeeds, but rather we come clean before the living God. We come and we confess our sins before him because we find grace and mercy to meet us in our time of need. And the hope of the gospel also says that you can be transparent with others, with family, whether they know the Lord or not, with coworkers, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. When we remember our redemption, we can be confident in our identity in Christ and not be dependent upon the approval of others. And I think you will find that most people will respect your honesty when you are not pretentious. So the gospel reminds us that we need not cover our shame in denial because our shame has already been covered by the blood of Christ. We stand guiltless before a righteous God who pardons us and welcomes us into his eternal presence because of the work of Christ. And so, remembering your redemption is one of the means of how you deal with ongoing sin, how you stay motivated to do your daily devotions, how you let go of regret and the sins that so easily entangle and how it meets your yearning for assurance that God loves you and accepts you in Christ. God defeated Pharaoh and swallowed up the Egyptian army of the Red Sea. The God who crushed his own son to defeat sin and death, he met you 
the hour you first believed, and he receives you and welcomes you into his heavenly presence. His grace is greater than all of your sin. And the good news of the gospel is that in Christ, God remembers your sins no more. God is able to block that out through the righteous blood covering of Christ. And the further hope of the gospel is that a time is coming when sin and death will be gone forever. And that's our third point, to remember your future redemption. Verse 5 of chapter 13 anticipates the conquest of Canaan when God would lead Israel into the promised land to defeat its godless occupiers. This was the land that God had promised Abraham centuries prior, and the time was ripe to take it. And so this God who had defeated Egypt, the greatest empire in the world at that time, what did they have to fear of the people in the land across the Jordan? Well, apparently plenty, as would come out in the spies' report later on. Due to their sinful disbelief, Israel would be 40 years delayed in the wilderness, allowing a new generation to rise up who would bury their parents in the wilderness and train for war under Joshua's leadership. Israel was looking forward to a future redemption. In fact, the whole Old Testament is a, a looking forward to a promised redeemer, the priesthood, the Levitical sacrificial system of sacrificing rams and goats and bulls was a manner of anticipating, looking forward to the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the one final sacrifice of sins, the true King of glory who would lead and shepherd God's people. And like our forefathers in the Old Testament, we too live in a time between the down payment of our redemption and our promised future redemption. Christ paid our full redemption of the cross, but he waits with us for the full return of his investment, the glorious inheritance of his second coming when he ushers in a new heavens and a new earth. The hope of heaven is an encouragement when we face trials. Like our forefathers, we live in a land of giants called secularism, materialism, naturalism, and all kinds of false religions. Our future redemption teaches us to not be consumed with election outcomes, poll numbers, stock indexes, or even medical prognoses. We must remember what that great day will be like when we will be free from sin, a world untainted by evil and lies of disease and death and injustice. The time is coming when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and we will dwell in his everlasting presence and glory, entering into the joy of the Redeemer. When you prepare for a great test, you study because our memories are leaky. Our memories need training. It, need, it takes effort. And just as you would prepare for a great exam, 
at college or to receive some type of certification. So the, the hard work of remembering applies to the Christian life. It does take work. It does take effort. It takes time and investment to take these truths and keep them in our minds and our hearts. And as we come to the Lord's table tonight, we are reminded to remember the mighty acts of the Lord Jesus Christ who by his body and blood shed for us, purchased our redemption. The cross was a gruesome event, as was the Lord's defeat of Egypt, a horrific judgment. The punishment for sin is death. God crushed the firstborns of Egypt, and it was his will to crush his own firstborn son. For without the sacrifice, there is no forgiveness of sins. And we must not turn our eyes away from the cross. The way Israel would, some would not look at the bronze serpent that Moses would, Moses would raise up in the wilderness. We must behold the one crucified, remembering that our sin held him there, that, that our voices can be heard in the crowd. Crucify him! Crucify him! In the rebellious nature that is our fallen condition. But it's only by acknowledging our bondage to sin, rebellion against God, and our need for a Savior, that we experience true forgiveness, freedom, and eternal redemption. And so may God help each of us to remember, to remember his redemption in history, presently in our lives, and the promised hope of future redemption. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are grateful for the great redemption that you have provided in the Lord Jesus Christ, conquering sin and death. And so we pray that you would help us to remember and meet us in our forgetfulness, in our weakness. And may we remember well and testify of the mighty deeds of the Lord, we pray in your precious name. Amen.